You're listening to Rosie on the House. Come on around back, Arizona homeowners. It is 8 o'clock Saturday morning. It's the second Saturday of the month. That means we are talking trees with ISA certified arborist John Eisenhower of Integrity Tree Service, a Rosie on the House certified arborist. And, John, we've got to start off by fessing up, man. Yes, we covered the tree of the month last month, and we talked about pomegranates again. <laughs> well, but that's all right. I, I do like pomegranates a lot, as you know. We and did I'm it always, two months in a row. I'm always ready to talk about them. But our tree of the month last month was actually the pistache tree. And so what are we going to do? We've because we, we've got the mesquite. And, and as we heard from people, we published in our home maintenance calendar what tree of the month we'll be talking about. So we have people that use the calendar that were excited to learn. And so are we going to compliment gonna, them or are we going to cover mesquites today for everyone counting on mesquites? We're going to do them both. We're, we're going to do, do them both. both. Absolutely. Right. And I'm going to start out with um, answering some questions about the pistache tree. The pistache is, a, is a, an amazing deciduous tree. It, that is, it loses its leaves in the winter, um, but it's one of the, the most dramatic fall color trees that we have in, in, in Arizona. In the low desert, there's plenty of, of, of deciduous fall color trees uh, in, the, in the higher elevations, like in Flagstaff. But down in, in the valley, we have very few trees that, that really give you a nice dramatic push of color. Uh, the pistache is one of those few that is, is just a, a really beautiful uh, fall tree. If you want to uh, uh, a deciduous tree, great choice. Uh, I like them because they're also really compact. They have a nice shade. Um, they're a nice shade canopy that is generally as wide as they are tall. So, you know, it's not going to be like a pine tree, with, which, which can be much taller than they are wide. Um, and they're, uh, they're easily um, planted and grown here in the valley. They have a really uh, two or three cultivars that are uh, readily available at, at local nurseries, so you can go get a great pistache tree. And uh, we really like the Red Push; it's the one that has the really brilliant red color. Uh, and and uh, there's some others that have a, a more of a yellow leaf, like the one my wife and I bought. Have it's just amazing. They're just I have this carpet of, of wonderful yellow leaves every um, every fall. And those the Red Push they call it that because the new growth is red. Is, so is, come. Summertime, every you can tell how much the tree's growing because it'll be red, and the green was from previous from years. The previous <laughs> years, that's right. They're just a, a, a an incredibly um, durable tree too. No thorns. They 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 just are a, um, uh, an attractive attractive tree. We we just like them a lot. Just extremely nice symmetrical shape. If you're wanting one of those classic uh, uh, shade trees that has a central leader, an even distribution of foliage. Uh, whereas a lot of our, our desert trees can be pretty wispy and rangy, uh, angular, where they they and they droop down all the time. Uh, this tree has more of an upright growth habit, so it's going to give you a a nice um, a branch canopy that you can uh, train to to grow um, high enough so you can walk under it. Um, just a really great tree all around. And it is from the pistachio family, but this isn't a fruiting tree. You're not no. going to get any kind of no. You're not going to get any it. fruit from it. No, there were some questions from some of uh, one of our, our our listeners who was waiting with bated breath for us <laughs> to cover the pistache last month. Wrote in and asked a few questions about it about the amount of litter, 
And the, the duration, she asked about the leaf, the duration of the leaf drop. And that's a good question. Some trees start pretty early dropping leaves, and they'll continue for a long time, weeks and weeks of raking those leaves. Others' trees seem to dump them all at once, and they're done. Um, and it really isn't so much a question of, of species as it is the, the quality of soil, the planting conditions. Um, we found that some of our landscapes have four or five trees, identical species, planted the same time, all about the same size. One of them drops leaves earlier than the others. And it has to do with the soil conditions, the water availability, the stored nutrients. And sometimes the trees are just um, under a little bit more stress, so they'll drop their leaves earlier and they'll... Go ahead. And do microclimates and weather have anything to do with sure. that? Because it Absolutely. seems like that could be another factor. Sure. My mulberries, if we don't get a freeze, it never fully drops all its leaves. Yeah, Inter- yeah, that, and that happens quite often in 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 Arizona, particularly in the low desert, because we can have a very mild winter. It doesn't trigger those that abscisic acid, which is responsible for causing the leaves to abscise and fall off the branches. And if, if that's not happening, as a, and it's a function often of the temperature, we don't have those, those nice spike, uh, you know, temperatures that spike down pretty deep um, that triggers that activity um, that sometimes our, our deciduous trees will, will uh, their leaves will persist deep into the winter, and you won't have that leaf drop and, and, change, and color change until later. And I knew trees photosynthesized. But I never knew they let off acids and asynthesizes. <laughs> I always learn something new with you. <laughs> well, yeah, there's some de- several hormones among them. That's abscisic acid, which is responsible for leaves dropping. It's interesting. If they do carry their leaves right through the winter until spring, it's interesting. What they'll do is they'll dump all their leaves before they put on the new growth. So you, sometimes you do have this late, you know, uh, dropping of all the leaves and then the, you know, the— uh, the new the, growth the, comes. The push of the new growth, exactly. Which I do love. I, I love the evergreens, but I do love something about watching year over year the new growth and all the sprouts, and you get these little clusters, and you're like, how's that going to turn into a leaf? And all of a sudden, you you have this period of time, especially around our ash trees, where there's bees everywhere. They're just busy, 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 and it, it goes from all these little fuzzy little balls. Clusters, and yeah. You come home at, after a work day, and you've got these leaf sprouts. <laughs> Boom, yeah, it ju- yeah, just almost overnight. Yeah, as far as the pistache goes, there is going to be a certain amount of litter with all deciduous trees, but um, it is, and, and there's a certain amount of cleanup involved in it, but there's something about having deciduous trees that is so cool. You get that nice sense of, of, of uh, the seasonality, which we, we, we lack here in, in the valley. We don't really don't have four well-defined um, seasons, so... To have a couple of deciduous trees in your yard at least gives you that sense of fall, and uh, it's uh, we we love it. Even there's a little bit of a, a litter pickup, and uh, so hope that answers the questions of our caller who who wanted to know about the the litter on those. Uh, now you'd mentioned there's a the pistache you have has a yellow. Mm-hmm. Uh, what how many different varieties of pistache do we have? Because I'm going to end it by talking about the red push again. Well. I, I just know of the, of the couple that we've um, we've used the one that have the, the the more of a yellow leaf. Then you've got the red push is is probably the most popular. That's the one we hear the the nurseries are, are always talking about, and the, the ones that have that dramatic red color. 
And what I like about that most of all is, is they're grafted right here. Bernie's got his Arizona mm -hmm. Pistache Tree Company in Marana. They're they're hardy for Tucson. They're hardy for higher elevations. I th I think at least up to thirty five hundred, and. So many of our plants might come from big Monrovia growing yards in California or Oregon, and there's nothing wrong with that. But if you can find something great that's it's here locally, locally in your backyard, yeah, that and, just and makes it that much better. Yeah, thank goodness for our, our local nurseries and growers here who develop some cultivars. I think of, you know, um, uh, arid zone trees and mountain states, and they, they have some wonderful uh, uh tree cultivars that they've developed specifically for low desert areas in, in our own state. If you want to talk trees, it's one 767 4348 That's 1-888-ROSIE for you. Text to 411-923 or email at info at rosieonthehouse.com. We generally do get a picture or two of people saying, what tree is this? What tree is this? We're going to have quite a tree photo library here in another year or two. Um, or mesquite tree. Did you want to touch on well, that while we'll, we got a few We'll minutes? give the mesquite tree a whole segment by itself all right <laughs> well let's uh to give it its proper uh, uh honor uh yeah i don't want to cram it in the last couple minutes of this segment so we always talk about a tree of the month and then we also have our monthly uh tree to do so let's hit our first to do on our on our november talking trees calendar well we want to be able to um back off on your pruning you know this is time when as the temperatures are dropping, you drop the dosage of pruning on almost all of our tree species. When you get into December and January, of course, our deciduous trees can be pruned. Uh, but as far as our evergreens go, especially our frost-sensitive trees, you want to be lightening up the pruning. Can pruning be done at all this time of year? Yes. Um, how much? Well, if you want to do some light grooming of some of your trees, um, after these rains we've had recently, trees are just going crazy. I've been on properties all week, and it's just amazing how many the trees are flourishing. So some of those trees all, that might all have All that rain, still warm. I know. Well, they, <laughs> it's all those that, that store nutrients, and they, they are just pushing new uh, growth pretty late into the year. So you might have to do a little bit of grooming that you might have been able to in past years, waited until, until next spring to do. But you can do a little bit of grooming, on even on your frost-sensitive trees like citrus. You can just be shaping those, taking the odd branch off here and there, just to kind of tie you over until the, the new year when you can do a little heavier pruning. But no, no heavy pruning this time of year on any, any of your trees. Not deciduous, not evergreen. Well, your deciduous, you, you can do a little, little heavier, just normal pruning on those. We, again, we try to aim for about 20 25% of uh, foliage reduction on any maximum at any one pruning cycle. And because the deciduous trees can be pruned fully, yes, you can uh, give them their full dosage of pruning. And is it better to prune a deciduous tree when it still has leaves on it or when there's no leaves? Because when there's no leaves, it looks a lot different than it does when it does have leaves, but you don't want to cut out the photosynthesis. So do, do you mark the branches you want to cut off and wait till they drop and then trust that you mark the right ones? Or am I overthinking that? When, yeah, when you I'm probably are overthinking it because, well, the, <laughs> I, the, the I branches have a tendency to do that. The branches wither without leaves, you know, uh, need to be pruned because they need to be pruned in terms of the structure that you're trying to, the objective you're trying to accomplish. So the only problem with waiting until all the leaves drop is you might end up not knowing which branches are dead or alive. Good point. 
So we're talking trees with John Eisenhower, ISA certified arborist and host of our Talking Trees monthly radio broadcast. It happens the second Saturday of the month right here at Rosie on the House, your Saturday morning tradition for 30 years. We'll be back right after this. The expert that's brave enough to say the word deciduous. Talking Trees with John Eisenhower, Rosie on the House. Thank you for staying with us. We're talking through our November to-dos on our tree calendar. We've got uh, spraying that can be done for uh, basically preventative maintenance when we talk about olives. Yeah, this is a time to get scheduled for uh, getting your olive trees sprayed. I just thought about it today as I was walking through a large property with tons of olive trees, and uh, we get backed up with our scheduling, and we like How to try How early did you start this morning? <laughs> Pretty early. I know you get an early start because most of your emails uh, I get from you are between 3 and 4 a.m. You hit a job before you got down here this morning? <laughs> oh, my goodness. Yeah, the uh, we, we do try to um, get out early. I need to be at the yard by 4.30, so I sometimes check my email the first hour before that. <laughs> oh, man. We, we try to get our spraying started in January, and we spray right on through till you know about the middle of March, maybe a little bit beyond that. But it's good to get on our schedule early enough, so this is a good time. I just wanted to give a heads up to give people an alert that it's time to give us a call and be sure that you can get in that rotation. Now, olive trees can't be planted in a lot of Arizona anymore, but there's still a lot of olive trees left. There was nothing that ever said you have to cut down what you have. And this spraying helps prevent just an explosion of purple concrete. (laughs) Yeah. You can no longer plant a fruit-bearing olive tree. So they do have fruitless olive trees, which are available. But there are a lot of older olive trees, which are long-lived trees. They're just amazing. They can live to be 100-plus years old. So there's a lot of um, fruit-bearing olive trees all across the the southwest desert communities. And they um, produce a lot of olives and a lot of mess. you can live with the mess, let them let the fruit let them produce fruit normally, and then just deal with that as they the olives mature and start to drop on the ground. And like you said, you step on them and smash that purple juice all over. It stains the concrete. By the way, that that the stain of olive trees and of date palms or dates that fall out of palm trees, for instance, they do stain pavers and concrete. But it's temporary. It's all organic. There's some oils there that kind of hold the stain in place for. For several months, it'll persist, but generally it, it needs just a couple of months of sunlight to oxidize that, and it will disappear like disappearing ink. But you have to be patient. You know, we have a lot of, you know, a lot of people run, running out there with all sorts of caustic compounds to clean up that olive mess, and it's really hard to find products that can actually lift that out of the concrete. We found s- some products that are, that are actually a paste that you can put onto the stain leave it for a half hour, 45 minutes, I believe, and then you can lift it off, and it, and it, it kind of pulls the the oils out of the, the stain. But that's a lot of work when you've got 50 to 100 of those little uh, pock marks all over your, your concrete. So I would just encourage you to leave it if you can bear the uh, the, the ugliness of the of those stains for a, a season because within a year they'll be gone. But if you sprayed, you have less to worry about. Back, that back spray. to the spring, yeah. And this <laughs> is why a lot of people bloom. like to spray. It causes the um, the little uh, olives, when they're forming, to abort, to basically drop off before they ever form. So it's a really nice, it's kind of a, it, it basically it tricks the, the plant into uh, into thinking that it needs to drop the fruit. And it's it, it, I believe a lot of the chemicals that are used have that abscisic acid in them. It's basically a hormonal treatment. It's not really a high toxic chemical that you're spraying on your trees. But it tricks the tree into thinking that it's time to drop its its fruit. 
and and that it usually has about 80 90 percent coverage we ask our customers to consider actually pruning your olive trees um, prior to spraying so you get better coverage so if and you, I'm sure that you use less product that way too absolutely yeah you get better coverage and 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 and, uh, and whenever we less talk expense. about an olive treatment to prevent this we always get people can, is there something I can do for my mesquites can I do that to my Texas ebony can I do that to my you know fill in the blank of anything that produces other yes. fruits and it's been really amazing because we've been a, a uh, the tree industry has been a, appealing for the for the chemical manufacturers to to broaden the label on some of these products to cover some of these other types of trees like your Texas ebony's your your mesquites and others and they've done this recently so now some of these same olive stop products that that, that have been available and used principally for olives now can be used across a lot of pod producing trees a lot of our legumes so the one to talk to in our office would be Sarah Maitland our plant health care director she can give you a heads up on on if you have one of those trees that produces a ton of pods and they're dropping all over uh, like your mesquites uh, give her a call because she can talk to you about the availability of products that we can use to stop that um, that pod drop she's like the in-house scientist she is she's an, she's amazing we're so proud uh, proud of her and, and happy to have her on staff but there's a window of 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 opportunity to spray so you have to have the right spray window to be able to get the right coverage at the right time while the the pods are or the blooms with the the these uh, mesquites for instance you have to do it while the bloom is on uh, because those blooms then produce the seed pods so you need to you know spray at the right time and again uh, Sarah Maitland in our office would be happy to coach you through that and give you a, an estimate for the cost. And we won't spend a lot of time on the next topic because hopefully you've noticed the amount of rain that's fallen out of the sky and you've noticed the cooler days and you've dialed back your irrigation. You should have. I, I walked across a lake today that was used to be somebody's lawn and I'm <laughs> thinking, what are you? And, and the owner was very apologetic. He said, yeah, I, d- I think I need to adjust that uh, sprinkler, John. Well, you know, he's trying to get his winter lawn in. But he's just overdoing it. You know, you don't need to have it that wet. Uh, you just need to keep those uh, those little rye seeds um, uh, moist enough to, to stimulate the germination. And once they do get up and going, you need to uh, shut that water down. More Talking Trees right here at Rosie on the House right after this. Some grow nuts, some grow leaves. Either way you look at it, we're Talking Trees with John Eisenhower on Rosie on the House. I just had a random thought here, John, as we were coming back onto the air. What do you do with your equipment? I've got a pair of pruners that, man, if I leave outside for one minute and they get one drop of rain, it instantly starts to rust. And I got to get out there and a little sandpaper and I'm oiling it up. How, how often do you go through pruners and a saw? Well, yeah, we we really put our our equipment through the paces in a typical work week. You know, when we have our guys, you know, using them literally all day long, um, we go through, you know, uh, handsaw blades like they're going out of style. and Like a carpenter goes through razor blade knives? <laughs> yeah, we have, we have you know, there's some really good uh, carbide uh, uh, sharpeners, little hand sharpeners for, for doing your, uh, uh, sharpening your hand pruners. And, yeah, they... Uh, we don't do a lot of special treatment of oiling and honing our blades a lot. You know, we, you know, we just, uh, you wear them out too fast. Almost, you know, 
And you know the ones that we have, we, we like to put a uh, put a an edge on them every now and then because it's sure sure nice to have a good quality, you know, a nice pair of hand pruners. We spend a little bit of extra money on some of the better quality ones. You can buy these cheaper ones at, at your local uh, store that you know really cheap ones like five, under ten dollars a pair, and you're gonna they're kind of you get what you you pay for. Good pruners, you know, are going to cost you twenty twenty five dollars minimum. And you can pay up to you know fifty seventy five hundred dollars for a really nice pair, some that are just really uh, the uh, the mach- just the the parts are are just okay. really nice, just my, adjusted beautifully. My curious nature just hit that as I'm thinking through all these talking tree points and thinking through what I've got to go home and do and thinking about my saw and how I'm mad I left it out and got rained on. But uh, back to get on point we better cover mesquite trees for everyone that is expecting to learn about mesquites today that's following our home maintenance calendar yeah i want to talk there are a lot of mesquites that are that grow here um in the low desert we have our uh, chilean mesquite which is from chile of course it's a thornless fast-growing beautiful mesquite tree it's a hybrid cultivar that's really uh it's kind of a mesquite on steroids it can grow really really fast Got to be kind of ready for them, kind of like the hybrid Palo Verdes. There's an Argentine mesquite that has some wicked thorns. Uh, they can be up to three or four inches in length and extremely sharp and rigid. And, I mean, our guys ask for hazard pay when they have to trim those things. <laughs> They're just, like, really rough to climb in those. And and then uh, we have screw bean mesquites. Occasionally you'll see those here in the valley, and they're really, um, really common in southern Arizona. But we have our... Desert mesquite, our, our velvet mesquite, Persopus velatina is our tree of the month, and it's amazing. It's the one that grows locally in our desert washes. You'll see it all over uh, our Sonoran Desert. I love it. I was in a neighborhood today where there's a bosque of mesquites. It's a mesquite bosque. It's, it's the original mesquites that were in that wash 50 years ago, and here they are just running through this property and they're just amazing. They're really awesome trees. They they grow a little more slowly than some of the, the Chilean and the Argentine. Smaller thorns, but they just are a, a, a very durable tree. Grow pretty tall. They can get up to be 40 feet tall uh, at maturity. And they're, uh, I think, just one of our, it's kind of my favorite desert tree. When people ask me, what's your favorite tree? I'd have to say that, that, that velvet mesquite is uh, at top of my list. And they're, as opposed to the, the hybrids uh, and these, these other uh, uh, Chilean and Argentines, they grow a little more slowly, have really um, solid angles of attachment. Some of the, the, these other faster-growing mesquites, although they achieve their landscape purpose more quickly, they fall apart as well more quickly. They have you know, weak angles of attachment uh, and, and get so big and, and, and uh, so heavy that they end up losing a lot of branches. So for that reason, I, I, when people are, are asking my, you know, my recommendations for mesquites, as much as I like Chilean mesquites because they don't have thorns, I, I really ask them to look long and hard at that velvet mesquite as, a, as an option. It doesn't outgrow the ability. It doesn't outgrow how fast it can support itself. Exactly, yeah. And in, that it hasn't been hybridized you know, to the point that it's, you know, or culti- cultivated for long internodal growth and some of these other techniques that have been used to try to get these extremely fast-growing trees. 
It's just uh, it's a little slower. Like a lot of other trees, if the tree grows more slowly, putting wood more on wood on more slowly, they tend to be a, a tighter grained tree, stronger uh, internally uh, than a, than a tree that's putting on wood quickly, and less litter as a result. You know, trees are putting on their foliage more slowly. Uh, it they're dropping it more slowly. So, I like for that reason. I love um, t- Texas live oaks because they. They are a little slower getting established in the landscape, but they're like, they're, there's like no litter. There's no cleanup. They just have, a, they, they kind of keep to their, uh, to their, their space. And uh, so if you want a fast growing tree, just realize that the, the caveat is that you're going to have a higher litter producing tree, a tree that you're going to have to keep up with in terms of maintenance because it's going to sometimes get ahead of you on that curve. And you'll uh, probably won't live as long. And it, yeah, and structurally, some of these are are growing so fast that they outgrow their their architectural s- strength to, to support themselves. So you've got to be, you have to have uh, intervention in terms of pruning to keep them contained and within bounds. And uh, that's not a good a good situation. I mean, as a as a professional who's pruning trees every week, I see these things. I see these trees falling apart. I see the branch failure. I see this, and despite our best efforts we have to really work hard to get these trees under control sometimes and and uh, that's you know if you can start with a, a good choice in terms of tree selection uh, to find a tree that's not going to be giving you those sort of headaches hey why not go that direction first and then not have to be playing catch up and it takes a lot of time surprisingly enough to find some of these local natives from the nurseries you know they sell what's popular and they sell what they can make a profit and a lot of times if you're looking for these true ones you've got to go through like an arid zone and find out who they're distributing to that are growing these native southwest trees for those real but they are yeah zero escape properties sure they 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 exist and they're out there but it's not something you generally walk into a big box store and find sitting there on the shelf right but, you know, call in around and, and, and call some of the professionals who have connections in the nursery industry like our, ourselves and ask. And we can get you do, – do the extra research. It's worth the, uh, the effort to try to find that, that, that better quality tree that's going to last longer in the landscape. So squeezing two trees in in one month and one Talking Trees broadcast in one hour. We've got uh, – we're running out of time here to cover the rest of our talking points. So let's hit soil and tissue sampling. That is – uh, something that I don't is that a relatively new practice or is it just becoming where more people are doing it that it's becoming more mainstream? Well, good quality companies, you know, will not prescribe, you know, fertilization treatments until they've diagnosed that there's a need for it. You know, the ANSI standards recommend recommend that. Uh, we, you know, the old saying is diagnosis. You know. Um, Prescription without diagnosis is malpractice, and it really is. If you're you know, just throwing fertilizer out haphazardly onto the landscape, almost all of our fertilizers are salt-based, so we're increasing the salinity in our soil by throwing fertilizer down. There has to be a real need for those fertilizer products uh, to be applied. So soil sampling is just kind of a baseline. We love to be able to go to a property for the first time, visit it, and take a couple of random soil samples from the from the um, the uh, from their uh, uh, different parts of the yard, 
We take them in for a simple soil sample. It's not very expensive. We take it, send it out to a local laboratory for analysis. We get back our macro and micronutrient levels. We have our calcium to magnesium levels. We have our, our, our P, soil pH. We can get a real a quick um, uh, look at, at what the, 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 those plants might need. And it's a, a really nice to then be able to tailor a, a fertilizer program specifically for that property. Uh, also, we've been doing a lot of um, tissue analysis for uh, Texas root rot, for instance. Just recently, I've come across several trees that died this last summer due to Texas root rot. Well, before a, a cut, we're going to take those trees down, but before the customers uh, replant in that spot, we uh, highly recommend doing a, a tissue sample of the roots um, that were left behind, and we'll send those in again for analysis, and uh, they'll confirm or disconfirm the presence of Texas root rot. If there are, then we're going to have to put in a, a non-susceptible plant plant back into that location so that it, it won't have any problems uh, like the tree that died. Just I, I thought I'd mention it because uh, we we offer a, a you know a host of these services and and I, I think a lot of our we're thinking I was thinking some of our listeners might be able to uh, use some of these services and, and have us come in and do these evaluations. Uh, before you're uh, uh, wanting to do these other treatments and and spray chemical applications, you never realize the emotional connection you have with the tree until you have to remove it. Whether it's Texas root rot, whether it's just old, or you've got uh, uh, root heaving a portion of mm-hmm. your home that it has to be removed to keep the home from being damaged. So it can be, you know, placing and planting that new tree and taking the time to do soil testing and taking the time to do uh, you know your your proper watering for whatever type of soil sure. you go into. It's, I mean, it's a lot of work, but if it makes it last twenty years longer, that you can enjoy that tree. You know, sure. The extra shade coverage you get on your home, the yeah, all the other benefits, the landscape functionality that it's designed to put there for. You know, when when all those things work together, that's a very enjoyable environment you've created for your own yard. Sure. Yeah, it's really an emotional thing when some of our customers have had to take out trees they've they've uh, um, lived with for many years, and they've contributed a lot of benefits to the landscape. And then they, like this uh, uh, recent uh, big pine tree that died with uh, due to Texas root rot. It's really sad because the gentleman just purchased the home recently, and and for in large part because of that big tree that was in the backyard, but. Uh, Texas root rot uh, took it down, and um, yeah, before he, he plants back in that location, we thought, yeah, you really need to do it, get a soil test. And there is a short list of non-susceptible trees that we can put back in the place of trees that, that died of Texas from Texas root rot, and we're going to uh, hook him up and make sure that it gets done. And what's the green team? Well, at Integrity Tree Service, several um, months ago, actually about a year ago, it's a year ago this this month in in December. We um, started a green team at Integrity to find ways to minimize our carbon footprint and find ways to uh, uh, employ practices and, and, and purchase products that have a, a l- um, less impact on our natural environment. And we just uh, have come up with this team in order to brainstorm and find ideas how we as a, as a company can do better in terms of our um, uh, living a little more sustainably. When we come back, our final talking point is the difference between compost 
and wood chips. Not the same thing, not the same function, but often uh, one's used in place of the other. Just maybe it's what we have on hand, maybe we're cutting a shortcut, or maybe we didn't realize the difference in the purpose of using a chipping product versus a composting product. Trees can't speak, but John Eisenhower speaks their language. Talking Trees with Rosie on the House. All right, we have so much content, and I'm trying to cram it into a short time frame, but I, I guess I jumped ahead of you a little bit. There's a couple more points on the green team you wanted to cover before we get to our composting well, versus mulch, uh, wood chipping. Yes, the, the green team at, at Integrity Tree Service was started in December of 2017. We I, there, I had some very highly motivated employees who were beginning to talk about sustainable practices, and so we got together and created the green team. And the idea was, again, to uh, develop practices and, and, and purchase products that had less impact on our environment. And we generated immediately a bunch of ideas, uh, which is really our main, was main reason for the committee was to get together to be an idea generator. Uh, we talked about um, taking some of our branches from some of our jobs and, and dropping, dropping them off at the Phoenix Zoo because they are always in constant need of browse material for some of the animals. So we're in in discussions now with the zoo, and they have a protocol for dropping off a depository there where you can bring your your brows and drop it off for them. They're also looking occasionally for architectural branches of dead trees that their birds can roost in, so they can be inside their exhibits, and the birds can you know have a branch structure. So we're always they're always interested in those if you if we come across them. So we uh. Also talked about using biodegradable um, products as opposed to petroleum products. There's a biodegradable chainsaw bar oil, for instance, uh, which we uh, put into to use, and it isn't great because the viscosity is not as, as, as thick, so it, it flies off the bar a little bit more, and it's a little messier to use. But we're kind of experimenting, trying to see if there's some other products out there. We've been doing some research along those lines. Uh, of course, we're trying to use fewer paper products and uh, and and so forth and plastics. And say if you figure it out, you let me know because the harder I try and get away from paper ending up on my desk, it seems like <laughs> the faster the pile grows. Like well, that, don't put any paper on my desk. Well, you know, going paperless in an office is becoming more and more of a reality. You know, the you know the the one most pop most common. Um, object you see at yard sales this day is file cabinets because everybody has digital files now. Everything's on computers. Paper products are slowly going away. And we're trying to do as much as we can. We're improving our technology and our use of tablets and, and smartphones. So it's trying to get away from the use of paper products as much as possible that way. Uh, small. These are small trade-offs, though. And are we, are we getting everything exactly right? No. But the committee has been awesome because it's giving us uh, – you know, when we threw out those first 11 ideas, only three of them were implemented within the first six months because the other ones just we realized for the effort and the, the energy to expend to try to implement those, it just wasn't really worth worthwhile. There wasn't a return and a significant um, um, a step toward achieving our goal of being more sustainable. For instance, there was a trade-off with um, should we go to a landfill, a green landfill, uh, instead, instead of to just a, a, a typical transfer station that, that puts your green waste into a landfill. This was a composting landfill. We thought, well, let's do that. Let's, let's go. But we realized the distance we would have to drive 
to get to that green landfill was going to be causing a more fuel usage and more time to get all the way across town to get to that, that location that we realized, you know, I'm not sure that the significant difference would, would be worthwhile. And there was very little savings to us as a company either economically. So we have to kind of, and, and I would encourage our listeners too, when you're trying to do something green, trying to reuse, recycle, repurpose things, just start with the things that are right in front of you and do the little bit that you can thinking that hey, I'm not making much of a difference, but these little things are, are, are pretty, pretty awesome. We finally came up with what we thought was the biggest contribution we could make to keeping green things out of the landfill was recycling our wood chips, finding an outlet for our wood chips. And we have found that wood chips are amazing. They are do so much for the environment and we have a lot of customers who want them. We now have the difficulty of trying to hook up our crews with a truck full of wood chips with a customer who wants them. And unfortunately, we have a waiting list of about 150 customers who want wood chips. And they're on a waiting list because we're, we're delivering them for free. But they have to wait until we have a truck that's in their area. And at the end of a day, we need to hook up with them and, and, and drive there and drop, drop, off, drop off those chips. All the effort to use less gas on better truck routes goes down the drain when you're sending trucks out for free to all these different random places well, delivering wood chips. Well, it's not just chips. economics. It's, <laughs> it's, getting the, it's getting the wood chips out of the landfill. And it also, we, we save the tipping fee because when we have to go to a landfill, we have to pay to drop those chips off. And when we have a lot of our customers who want those chips, it just makes sense to for us to try to hook up with them. And before we run out of time, wood chips versus compost. Well, wood chips are, are amazing. They're much better than a finished compost, which is already finished. It has very little to, to offer back to the uh, to the environment. Wood chips in their decomposition process are giving back a lot to the soil, giving back nitrogen, helping to encourage uh, microbial activity in the soil. They're uh, creating beneficial fungi as well that are going to be able to really improve the rooting environment. Uh, so if you can spread those wood chips in and around your trees, uh, they do uh, uh, a lot of good for the landscape. Less water evaporation. So Absolutely. You, you've got water savings there. Weed control. Weed control. Dust control. And, yeah, I, we've got wood chips all over our yard. No, Very few weeds come up, and when they do, you can pull them out real easy. It's Rosie on the House. If you'd like to get in touch with Integrity Tree Service, you can reach them at itreeservice.com or 602-788-0005.